Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back again today to As I Live and Grieve. I know I tell you this every week, but this week I mean it probably more than ever. I am so excited about our guest today. With us today is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, and I'm going to let her give a bit of her background before we go too far. So welcome, Mary Frances, and thanks so much for coming today. Oh, thank you for having me, Kathy. It's such a delight to be here. As you said, uh, I'm a professor at the University of Arizona, and I run the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab. So we really study what happens uh, in the brain and uh, the body when someone has experienced the death of a loved one and a few other lost type situations as well. And I'm trained originally as a clinical psychologist and also as a neuroscientist. And uh, I hate to say it, but it's been over 20 years now I've been doing this work. (laughs) Well, that's great. Everyone who listens to us week after week knows that two of my best friends are Amazon and Google. And I believe it was my good friend Amazon that all of a sudden popped up one day a recommended book, and it's yours. And I know it's just been released. It has just hit the shelves. When I went to our local Barnes & Noble to buy a copy of it, they said, oh, this just came out. And I said, yes, and it's a good thing you have a copy of it. (laughs) Now, this is, of course, when you you read the title, The Grieving Brain, and you see the background of the author who is with us, then you think, "Uh uh-oh, scientific book, is it going to read like (laughs) a textbook? And I probably shouldn't even consider this. Well, let me tell you something. Hang on, because I had so many aha moments as I just leafed through the book that I cannot wait to go back and dig in. So let's just kind of show you through our discussion. Now, when we lose a loved one, one of the thoughts that goes through our minds is disbelief. You know what happened? Maybe you were there. You see it. You feel their absence. But you just can't really believe this happened to you. You search for proof that they still are here, that they remain. You look for signs that they're coming back shortly. Maybe that garage door is going to open, as you mentioned. Why is it so hard for us to understand that they're really gone forever? I think something that's surprising about the brain is that it actually can rely on several different streams of information at the same time, even when those streams of information don't agree with each other. And so just exactly as you said, if we think about memory then the brain is very good at encoding memories of what we've experienced. Could have been that phone call uh, to say that someone you loved has died or going to a funeral. And so being there, making memories of standing around and getting hugs. Memory is one part of what we rely on in the brain to make sense of our world. But the brain also has another aspect, which is when an attachment bond is formed, when we fall in love with our one and only, whether that's Mm -hmm. our spouse or child, there is a belief that comes along with that bond encoded in our brain, 
which is they will be there for me and I will be there for them. And that belief is different, is different information than the memory. And so initially, those two types of information, those two information streams can conflict. And it's very difficult for the brain to work out how to predict exactly what's happening. Yeah, in your first chapter, you mentioned, and I'm not going to give it all away because people are just going to have to buy the book. (laughs) Or go to their library if your library is lucky enough to have a copy. Page three, I'm telling everybody, because I know people are out there just like me. One of the things that helped me start to move forward shortly after my husband died was learning more about grief, what it is, how it affected me. As I started to kind of educate myself on that, I started to move. Yeah. And it's books like this. So page three, a little anecdote, if you will, about the dining room table. That was my very first aha moment. Again, page three. So pretty much everybody's first knowledge of grief is the Kubler-Ross theory. Um, And it's pretty much the first theory of grief that everybody recognizes. But you discussed the dual process model. Would you summarize that for our listeners? It's extremely helpful. And I was better able to understand the fluctuation of moods and emotions during my grief journey. Yeah, I think, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model she wrote about it for the general public in 1969. And I think the public really appreciated getting to understand from the interviews she had done with people who were grieving. But the things that she was telling us, while they are true, people feel anger and they feel depression and so forth. It's not that those are linear stages as though you finish up with one and then you move to the next one. So the dual process model was really in part a reaction to that and was developed um, by some wonderful researchers in the Netherlands. And what it focuses on is the idea that really a bereaved person, they face two different kinds of stressors. On the one hand, there's what we might call the loss stressors. And this is typically what we think of as grief, the you know overwhelming emotions that just flood you and all those intrusive thoughts you can't get out of your head and, and, and things we think of as grief. But they very wisely pointed out there's another set of stressors that bereaved people have to deal with, and they call these the restoration stressors. So I think of this as, how am I going to restore a meaningful life now that I'm bringing the absence of this person along with me? So if I was planning to retire with this person and we had plans for traveling and so forth, what on earth does my future look like now? And even simpler things like, you know, how am I going to do the grocery shopping if I'm not buying food for two people? Or how am I going to talk to my son uh, about, you know, things his father would have talked to him about? So those sort of restoration stressors are also something that bereaved people are dealing with. But as you say, the genius of the model, I think, is that they talked about the fact that people oscillate back and forth between these two aspects of what they're coping with. And that, to me, really, really strikes the the experience that people have, in addition to moments where you're just also leading everyday normal life. Right, Mm -hmm. right. It makes tons of sense. Mm -hmm. In the book, you also distinguish the difference between grief and grieving. Could you help us to better understand that difference? 
I have also found this to be very useful. So grief is, as I said, that just that moment that knocks you off your feet. We often call these pangs of grief, right? Because they're somewhat time limited. And, and that's what we're trying to capture with the word grief. Grieving, on the other hand, is the way that grief changes over time without ever really going away. And I think the example that might be most useful for this is, you know, when you first go through those waves of grief, you think, I'm not even going to get through this moment, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is unbearable. Mm -hmm. And so over time, it isn't that you won't have those waves of grief, but your way of relating to them changes. So for example, you may feel like, I really hate this wave that's hitting me right now. Exactly. But it's familiar, right? Yeah. And that is a change where you come to carry it with you and you get to know it and how to manage it, how to how it fits in your life today. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. I'm telling you, aha moments. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Um, and, and you also have a way in your writing um, that in the beginning of the chapter, you talk about the concept and everything in a way that I was easily able to understand it and relate it to something I have experienced. I think in almost every chapter, you do then go on to a more scientific explanation and talk about studies and everything. And that's what I have to go back to the second reading for. The information is there. It's understandable, certainly. But it is a little more of a scientific background. Sure. So even though the book might strike someone initially as being a scientific text or a science-based text on grief, there's a lot in there that the average person can glean. There's just a lot of it. So I want to emphasize that as well. And, and I think part of the reason is that I too, of course, have experienced grief. And so mm -hmm. I am steeped every day, you know, in these scientific sure. studies. But the important part for me was how does someone who knows all that background, how do they apply it to their own life right. or how do they apply it to the people around them? So mm -hmm. this was the reason for me of trying to make it very readable by interpreting what uh, has been found for folks. Right. And, and through your discoveries and, and your conclusions and everything, there is material there to help us better understand kind of what we need to do. Yeah. You know, how we might kind of hone our path or clear the way. Uh, yeah. There's you have a chapter entitled Having the Wisdom to Know the Difference. And I loved how you brought the serenity prayer in on that one. Uh, that line, wisdom to know the difference. You offered me another aha moment. Now, if it's okay with you, you had, there was this exercise, part of a study that they mentioned four bereaved people. Each had a different activity. And then there were two questions. Can we do that as kind of an exercise for our listeners? Sure. Okay. All right. So listen carefully. There are four bereaved people, four people in grief. One of them chooses to go to a party with friends. One decides to stay home and watch a favorite movie. Another one spends some time with family telling stories about the loved one who died. And the fourth person writes in a journal about their grief. So you got it? 
One goes to a party, one stays home to watch a movie, another tells stories and goes over memories of family, and the fourth is journaling. Two questions were asked in this study. Which of these people would you be most interested in meeting? And the second question is, which one do you think is most like you? So make your decisions, and then I'm going to ask Dr. O'Connor if she would kind of reveal what those choices tell us about ourselves. I think this was such a novel idea. And this mm-hmm. is the work of Melissa Sonka and Jeff Greenberg at the University of Arizona. And what I think is so interesting about this study is that people often assume that going to a party is not appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. right. Either because they think, well, I wouldn't go to a party because I'm not going to have a good time, right? Because I'm grieving. Or they think, it's disrespectful to go to a party when you have lost someone. But here's the interesting thing. In a later part of the study, they also had people do various activities. And it turns out we're not actually very good predictors of how we're going to feel. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that while we may predict that we're not going to enjoy going to do something that's um, pleasant, or even staying home and doing something entertaining, like watching a movie. In fact, those things are often activities that make us feel safe. They make us feel connected. And those things help us as we're processing our grief. We can't be in grief all of the time. It's exhausting for our mind Mm -hmm. and for our body. And so taking some breaks is really important. And I would say, even if you aren't completely enjoying being at the party, it is a way to support the important parts of life. So just like you may be having trouble sleeping, but it's still really important to keep a regular sleep cycle so that by the time your sleep improves, you're still in the habit of keeping good sleep. In a similar way, it's an important habit to spend time with your friends and to do things that are enjoyable, even if you don't enjoy them in that moment, because someday you will, and you don't want to lose the habit of going out and doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. In in that chapter, it goes on to talk about positive and negative emotions and how even the things, as she says, that we don't want to do. We don't, you know, we're grieving. Everybody knows we're grieving, so we cannot do anything. Can't laugh. Right. Can't laugh on this podcast for a very good reason. That's right. And it feels good when we laugh. Yeah. A lot of times those events will help some of the sadness go away, even temporarily. Yeah. Which is healthier for you. Get rid of that sadness, even for a few moments. And then the others are more rebuilding. Yeah, restoration. Exactly. So that kind of speaks to that loss versus right. restoration dual process model. That's right. And I think, you know, when we're avoiding feeling bad, it's a strange thing about human beings, but we aren't able to just ignore one channel of feelings. So if you're avoiding negative feelings, you're not feeling positive things either, right? You're just not feeling much. Mm-hmm. And so to, to allow yourself to open up to any set of feelings that is true for you is an important part of really understanding what does it mean to be in the world now? What is it? What is my life actually like? Mm. Yeah. 
You mentioned um, at some point in your book, and I, I didn't write this one down, but it is um, sometimes we have these overwhelming blasts of grief, even though it's been a year, two years, five years after our loved one has died. And you talked about these a little bit. Can you just kind of go into that just a little bit? I think that grief is so unfamiliar, you know, until you've been through it yourself, it's just never like you think it's going to be. And so I think people want to know, you know, when is it going to be over? That's, of course, always the early days question. When is it going to be over? And we know that it's going to change, but that it's not really going to be over. And so I think if we are expecting to not have waves of grief in the future, then when they happen, we might think we've done something wrong or that we're not normal, right? Because we should be over it by now. But the truth is, grief is just a normal reaction to loss. And that happens throughout your life. My, my sister is engaged right now. And I know that on her wedding day, 25 years after my mother has died, we're going to have grief. It's going to yeah. happen. And it doesn't mean we've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean we haven't processed it properly. It's that it is natural to respond that way when we recognize the absence of the person who is so important. Yeah. I had read an article that was written back in 2020 by, uh, I think he's a psychologist, clinical psychologist, Jackson Prainer. And it was about these blasts, if you will. And he used the term... S-T-U-G, called them Sudden Temporary Upsurges of Grief. Yeah. Have you heard that term? You know, I've not heard that term, but even in the research, we can actually see these. So this is mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. In a, in a large study where people were being interviewed across the year, you know, the study's going on, so different times of year they're being, they're being interviewed. And when the researchers looked, if they were interviewed in the month that their loved one had died, their mm-hmm. grief scores were much higher. And sure. so even in, even in really quantitative data, we can see these upsurges, as you described them, mm-hmm. and, and we know that they're normal, especially around anniversaries and, and holidays. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes it could even be after a dream. Um, a, there's yeah. a lot of conversation about dreams and dreaming. Yeah. Of your loved one and everything. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that I think those dreams are really a, an example of how your brain has encoded that person so much that you can make up things they've never done, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know how they're going to react to you. You know the way they're <laughs> right. going to look at you. And that right. your brain is, is recalling all of that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. On the back cover of your book, there's mention to the fact that grieving is a form of learning. Another aha moment. (laughs) I feel overall your book describes this perfectly. But for our listeners today, could you elaborate on that? Because I think if we can understand that grieving, which is that process, that that alone is going to make us all more comfortable with how long we grieve. Yeah. Learning takes a long time, you know? Think about when you when you leave home, right? The when when you leave the nest. No 
one does that perfectly at first. That takes often years <laughs> to really kind of get it right, right? Oh, wait, what do you mean taxes are due in April, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think learning to live with the absence of a loved one is similar. It's going to take a long time and lots mm -hmm. of experiences to understand what it's like to operate now in the world. And this is why I think learning is is a good way to describe that. And that learning happens at lots of different levels. Mm -hmm. You can even think of the learning at a very sort of automatic habit level, right? So your brain is a prediction machine. Your heart is there to pump blood around. Your brain is there to predict what's going to happen next in the hopes that you can sort of deal with the future better. And it doesn't make sense if there have been, you know, thousands of days that your daughter walked in the door after school, mm -hmm. then it doesn't really make sense on the day that she doesn't walk through the door. You, it isn't a good prediction for your brain to say that she has died. Right. And it takes a lot of learning for the brain to really incorporate that information to not expect that that's going to happen or that you could pick up the phone and start texting her. And then you remember, oh, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of as hard to do that as it is to uh, change some of our habits. Yes, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know I struggle with that too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, all of that. But but again, I, I do love the whole concept that grieving is learning. And mm -hmm. again, I personally felt mm -hmm. I was starting to make some progress when I started learning more about grief mm -hmm. and how it was impacting me. Yeah. And then some of the things maybe that I could do, little things mm -hmm. that would move me in the right direction. So yeah. that has all been great. Yeah, I, I can't resist. I, I just can't resist. Would you? Would you do the dining room table? <laughs> I, I will. <laughs> my favorite. My favorite. It made so much sense to me. <laughs> I'm so delighted that it made sense to you. So here's, here's the thing. When I'm explaining the neurobiology of grief, it helps me to tell this uh, analogy. But in order for it to make sense, you have to believe a premise to start with. And the premise is your dining room table has been stolen. I can't really explain why your dining room table has been stolen, but just bear <laughs> with me. So one night you wake up in the middle of the night and you're kind of thirsty. And so you get up and you're headed to the kitchen to get a glass of water. And as you walk through the dining room, right when your hip should hit the dining room table, you have this experience, right? This sensation of the dining room table not being there. And that's a very strange thing. The brain is reporting an absence of something, not the presence of something. And that's really because, you know, the brain has such strong expectations that we're walking through two worlds at the same time. The brain has a map of how it's all going to work. And that's why you can walk through your house when it's practically dark to get a glass of water because the brain just sends you through the virtual world of where you should go and then notices when that virtual world and the real world don't match up. And that's when you get the sensation. So the analogy is you know, no one really can expect their loved one to die either. But the absence of that person is going to be present, is going to be something your brain is reporting back over and over and over again 
for a long time and in a small way, sort of forever. Uh, So that is part of why I think that understanding maybe the way the brain works can kind of give us an insight into experiences we might think are really crazy when they're really not. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. (laughs) I just love that. And I can't tell you, now just between, oh, yesterday and today, I probably have told no less than five people (laughs) about that. That's how much it has struck me and left an impression on me because I know what that feels like. And it makes sense. And it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And that whole concept about how your brain walks you through a dark home, it's the same thing. You talk about your brain being a predictor. So again, I, you know, I have to say (laughs) everything in your book is helpful. So I strongly encourage, and I'm, I'm always recommending books. I'm an avid reader and I always purchase and read the book of any guest we have, any guest author we have. But very quickly, my list changes as far as favorites. And I have to say, you're right in the top three right now. (laughs) Because again, again, it it gives scientific basis Mm -hmm. to what is going on for me personally. Yeah. And it gives me things I can hold on to. Yeah. And explain what's yeah. going on in my life. That's so right. I strongly encourage others to consider and, it and look at it. Yeah, it, it's not an it's not a typical advice book. I just don't think advice works very well. Right. But I think if I can put into people's hands what we know about how it works, how grief is working in the brain then they can apply that to their own experiences. I may, you know, I may be an expert on quote expert on grief, but you're an expert on your grief. And so you're going to apply it in different ways. Right. Exactly. And an aha moment that I had, someone else may not have, Mm -hmm. but there might be another section of the book that really speaks to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just an opportunity for personal growth in my mind and helping you you better understand. So sadly, our time goes by so quickly when we're talking to people. (laughs) But before we wrap up, I want to offer you a moment to speak directly to our listeners without Stephanie and I interrupting with questions or comments and just tell them about your book, where they can get your book, um, anything you want our listeners to hear from you. That's a tall order. (laughs) Um, Okay. I think if there was something I wanted to say to people, it's that you're going to have this experience and it's going to be unique to you, right? It's going to be as unique as the love you felt for this person. And that may incorporate all sorts of things, including feeling relief or feeling guilt or feeling regret or feeling panic, right? It's okay. It's okay, whatever you feel. You can decide how to deal with it, but go ahead and feel what you feel and then decide how you're going to act after that and and move forward to restoring the meaningful life you're already living. Great words. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank you again so much, not only for being here with us today, but also for the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I have an idea this book is may quickly become dog-eared because I know I'm going to go back to it again and again and again to make sure that I understand all of those 
scientific pieces. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, I cannot tell you how many times the story of the dining room table <laughs> may be repeated yep. in my community, <laughs> but I guarantee there are many others that are going to hear it and it's going to make sense to them at all. So again, thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you again for tuning in. We really, really appreciate the fact that you download our podcast and give a listen. And we appreciate reviews, comments, and all of that. This is no different than any other session. We're going to remind you all to take care of yourselves because self-care is probably one of the most important things you can do while you're on your grief journey. And we hope that you'll all join us again next week as we all continue to live in grief. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.